0: The Warm Springs Health and Human Services Department has been looking to spread awareness about risk and protective factors occurring in Warm Springs. Caroline Cruz, Warm Springs' General Manager of Health and Human Services, stopped by KWSO to share more information on these factors and their domains.
1: My name is Caroline Cruz. I'm the Health and Human Services General Manager for the tribe. My goal, I guess, is to give an overview of risk factors as well as those protective factors that occur here in the reservation with the confederate tribes of Warren Springs. There's been research that's been done since the early 70s, 80s, and this has been done with every ethnic group. It's been done worldwide. And what it does is it looks at, uh, this research was done with youth in, in order for us to have a starting point. And the work was done by two PhD-level individuals, uh, David Hawkins as well as Rico uh, Catalano, both PhDs, and they did a lot of their research out of University of Washington, and they work for the School of Social Work. And so, so this is something that just came from nowhere. It, it's been around for quite some time. The research was done, again, around certain domains. And so what they looked at is what puts young people at risk at the community level, what's happening in terms of risk factors. So some of the risk factors that occur at the community level is the availability of drugs, you know, within the, the community, as well as if we wanted to look at firearms, you know, how, how much is it available to young people? And then look at community what they call community laws and norms in terms of what do people think about their attitude around drugs as well as maybe uh, firearms. So what, what they say is a the fact that there's a lot of risk factors in community community community. It predicts in the future possibility the young person then having trouble with substance abuse, delinquency, school dropout, uh, teenage pregnancy, as well as there was a lot of other research done on gambling and also that was added. But kids who are surrounded with a lot of these risk factors don't complete school and they themselves are very depressed and become suicidal.
0: The youth of our community are very susceptible to the dangers of substance abuse, depression, and even suicide. It is in the nature of a child to watch and observe their parents, and it is what allows them to mimic and emulate the kind of negative behavior that will only grow as they get older.
1: The biggest one that is a great predictor is the family. And so when you look at the family, and there's a big history of problem behavior. So if a child is raised within family dynamics, that there's a lot of drug use in front of them. So kids are going to mimic what they see. And so you could go into a daycare center, and you could actually kind of predict what's happening within the household by looking at how children are interacting before the age of five. So if they're walking around like they're drinking, or they are portraying or acting out like they're underneath the influence of meth or other drugs, they'll act that out. Uh, The same thing If within the family dynamics, the family handles discipline issues by fighting or by yelling, by cussing, the kids are going to mimic cussing and also mimic uh, fighting. The other thing, too, the research says that if your parents were teenagers when they had you, you're at a higher risk maybe becoming a teenage uh, parent also. And if your parents didn't finish school, you're at a higher risk. Again, if your parents are depressed, and that's what the kids see, that's how they're going to handle stressful situations. So it also has to do in the family domain with how it's managed. Again, the uh, history and the management of how things are managed within the household is another predictor.
0: Risk factors aren't only found at home, but in public places like schools as well.
1: The other domain is a school domain. It's not the school. It is school domain. And so what happens is the fact that the earlier a child begins to fail within the school system, that's a risk factor, again, for substance use. School dropout, teenage pregnancy, delinquency, violence, and depression. The other school is a lack of commitment to school. Kids love school. And kindergarten, first, second, third grade, they love school. Usually around the fourth grade is where some dynamics begin to change. May it be the structure of the school, may it be because a child is behind uh, with reading math. It could be because they don't have good eyesight, but no one identified it, so they can't see the words or, or whatever, but yet they don't know that there's something wrong with their eyes because they've always had eye problems, and so they can't learn. It could be something as simple as that, but the risk factor is academic failure. So the more a child begins to fail, the more likelihood they're not going to succeed when they get into middle school or to high school or even into college. So the more we could bond with children, the more we could bond with with the community, we could reverse some of these risk factors. We have to do programs. What we do for the community, understanding that there's a lot of risk factors out there. We don't have time to go over there and said, okay, I think he needs this program, she needs this program, and on and on. We need to do different type of approaches that creates bonding with the individual, may it be from the community. So the more we could do for the community and given young people opportunity and then teach them the skills and then let them have some time to apply those skills and just tell these young people that they've done a good job. For example, having youth employed during the summer, that's a protective factor because what we're doing is we're giving the young people opportunity to work and hopefully teaching them a skill and then telling them good job. Of course, a paycheck is good, but telling them that they're doing a good job goes a lot further than any money could, could ever, you know, go for them. Some other things in terms of some programs that we're doing, for example, is an approach that we're using, which is called conscious discipline. Conscious discipline's been in our community probably for 10 plus years. We presented this concept. It's not a book. It's not a manual. It's not lesson plans. It is the way for us to understand how we discipline as an individual and how we come across to other people. So we presented this to the Culture and Heritage Elder Group about 10 years ago and they were so happy with this approach. Because what it teaches you is the fact that you should never discipline your child if you're angry. Because if you're angry, that's what the child is going to receive. So if you are angry and you're yelling at your child, the child only remembers, he doesn't remember what he did wrong. He only remembers how your face looked, how you shook your head at him or pointing your finger. And that's what he's keeping in him. So when he wants to get angry at his brother or sister or cousin or friend, he's going to mimic what was portrayed to him by the person who was disciplining him. What we try to make sure that we teach is the fact that we need to be under control in in, in the sense that we need to know where our brain state is. And that's a scientific way of saying it. But we need to understand that if I'm angry, I'm in the inner part of my brain, and that's in an emotional. I should not discipline my child when I'm emotional. What I need to do is take some deep breaths and get away from the situation and let Junior know, Junior, I need to talk with you later. You know, I need to walk away. He already knows you're angry. You don't need to explain to him he's angry. He even knows what he did wrong, and he's waiting to be yelled at. And then he's going to kick back at you, whatever, or yell back at you. And, he, and he's preparing for that. He's not prepared for you to walk away. But you can't let him get away with it neither. So you have to come back when your emotions are under control. And then you sit down with Junior. And you explain to Junior... For him to know, Junior knows he already did wrong. He doesn't need to reenact it. He knew he did wrong, but he also needs to take responsibility for that. And said, so "You're not going to do any excess discipline. What you're going to do is work with Junior and let Junior even be part of his discipline." Your kids are more harder on themselves than we are as parents because kids know, and kids do not really want to disappoint their parents or their grandparents. They really don't, and they don't like that feeling when they did something wrong. They. Really really, really don't. So we shouldn't go in there and try to make them feel. But they need to understand that there's certain type of thing that they done. For example, if Junior pushed down his sister and pulled her hair, he needs to understand that that hurt. You know, does he want to be pushed down? Does he want his hair pulled? Well, no, he doesn't. And why not? Because it hurts. Do you want to hurt? No. So then why did you make her hurt? So that, that's the principle in terms of the elders said, well, that's what we used to do.
0: And another program that seeks to root out risk factors at a young age is the Youth Resiliency Program. Warm Springs' Opioid Prevention Coordinator, Jaceline Brisbow, tells us more.
1: So I am Jaceline Brisbow. I am one of the Opioid Prevention Coordinators here for the Confederate Tribes, and I just focus on bring in activities, information, and really awareness to prevention topics. So the camp is about building youth resiliency. And resiliency is making people aware of situations, their own emotional reactions, and the behavior of those around them. And we do that by remaining aware they can maintain control of a situation and think of new ways to tackle the problem. In many cases, resilience people, they emerge stronger after such difficulties. And that attributes to so much in our young people's lives, um, sub abuse, peer pressure, bullying, you know, healthy relationships, or even regulating themselves.
0: Just a reminder, that was Jaceline Briswell, the opioid prevention coordinator from the prevention team at Warm Springs. Powwows, dancing, and making your own regalia are all protective factors.
1: A powwow is a protective factor because it takes time to put a powwow together. And if parents Work with their children, and the child maybe even make their own regalia, make their own moccasins. You know, make their own shawl. That's a protective factor because we're giving them opportunity. We're teaching them a skill, and then they dance. And it doesn't have to be competitive. It could be. Look at my grandson. Look at him. I'm taking pictures of him, and I'm sharing it with the other family members. That's a protective factor. It's making Junior feel good about himself, that he's a good dancer, and that he is promoting culture, and he's being Praise for that. So that's that's a protective factor. So this is the reason why we try to make sure that we have a variety of activities for all ages.
0: It is worth noting that even the smallest of things like teaching a child how to tie their shoe and praising them for it can help them immensely. These small bits of praise can go a long way for a kid, and it is important to give the youth opportunities for them to strive and help them understand that they do have meaning in our communities.
1: The most important I think protective factor is to try to do what we can for five years and under, because that's where they're forming their behavior patterns. Uh, this is where we we'll start teaching them independence in terms of the fact that they could do things on their own. Teaching them how to tie their shoes, that's a protective factor. And we don't see that, that it's a protective factor, but it is. Because of the fact that we're giving them opportunity, we're teaching them a skill, and then we're telling them, good job. We know that you don't learn how to tie your shoes overnight. Some kids can, most kids can't. And so we don't discipline them because they didn't do it right. We don't call them stupid. We don't belittle them. We tell them that's really good. Okay, let me teach you another way and how you could tie your shoes. It might take a week, it might take a month, but once they learn to tie their shoes and they feel good about that, then they're going to want to please whoever they're in the care of, may it be their parents, guardian, brother, sister. Look, I could tie my shoes. We The adults then have to praise them, and we have to tell them that was a good job. You're so good, you know, how you tied the shoe and how you looped it around. Those are protective factors. The more we, we do this as a community, we have to prove to our young people that they have meaning to be within this community, that we have to provide all those opportunities for them. And then we have to praise them. So if I begin to act out at two years old and no one structures me, helps me deal with why I'm misbehaving, the earlier I act out, the earlier I have antisocial behavior, the more it's gonna be very difficult to redirect me as I get older. Other one is I begin to rebel. You know, I begin to cuss out my parents, I kick the building, kick the wall, I, I strike out my, at my siblings, my cousins, my friends, and no one controls that. That puts me at risk. If I hang out with kids who are using drugs, then more than likely I'm going to use drugs. If I hang out with kids who are into delinquent behavior, the earlier my age is, the more likelihood that's what's going to happen uh, for me when I get older. If I get involved with a gang, more than likely, if I'm in with a gang at 10, more than likely it's just going to be more serious in terms of gang behavior as I grow up. Again, the earlier I get involved with these behaviors, that's a risk factor you know, for me if it's not redirected. And we can't leave out special needs. If, if some kids are, are born fetal alcohol syndrome, fetal alcohol drug affected, if I'm born with some disabilities, that puts me at a higher risk when I go to school and other kids put me down, and it's easier for me to connect with people with uh, juvenile delinquent behavior because they accept me, the more likelihood that I'm gonna be at risk. So these are all risk factors that come from the community, the family, school age, and my individual characteristics.
0: And here is an interesting fact you may or may not know about SIDS and the involvement of baby boards in Native American cultures.
1: Let's talk about back to the boards. Okay, back to the boards is a travel-based practice. Back to the boards, back in the 90s, uh, we had a very high level of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, and we didn't know why. So the state thought the reason why SIDS was so high was because of the use of tobacco. So there's a lot of research that says if you use tobacco, your child might come out as a low birth weight and with some maybe physical uh, problems. And they don't, they have connected the use of tobacco to SIDS. Some other research that came out that said if you put your baby back on its back, that, that reduces SIDS. And for years, we promoted putting the baby on the side, putting the baby on its stomach. While the research says you need to put your baby on the back and don't surround the baby with a bunch of bumper, those bumper things they put in the crib and too much blankets. In Native American communities, it's indigenous to put our baby in a cradle or in, in Warren Springs' case, a baby board. So guess what? You put the baby on the baby board and the baby's on its back the baby's not going to roll and suffocate. If the baby's put in the bed with the parents, uh, they're going to fill the board, so they're not going to crush the baby. And so a whole new strategy came about that we did years ago, and we brought it back, and now we have reduced SIDS.
0: There were six elements to the program that Caroline and her branch did which are directly involved with risk and protective factors.
1: But there's six elements to that program. The first one is prevention education. We needed to educate the community in terms of low birth rate, tobacco use, the use of alcohol, and drugs, and the fact that if you put your baby on the back, that's prevention. Uh, that's information dissemination. The second one is prevention education. We needed to return this this practice to this community because a lot of people did not know how to make a baby board. So we did baby board education and bringing people together. The uh, Third one is to have a healthy uh, alternative that's alcohol-tobacco-free. So we bring groups of people together to do this alcohol-tobacco-free event and teaching them how to make the baby boards. And then we give them the opportunity to connect them with maternity child health so they're connected with other new parents. And so they could talk about not only before the baby's born, but after the baby's born in terms of some difficulties. It is sometimes, you know, my baby won't burp, my baby has colic, you know, uh, different type of things. So they could have to work with the community. The next one is policies and environmental. So what we've done here by bringing the baby back to the boards, back to this community, we are now setting new policies and saying that any time you go to our Indian Health Service Clinic, that they're going to refer you to this class, and they're going to refer you to return to child health, and this is a guarantee. So we established a policy, and we impacted the environment. And the last uh, strategy is early identification referral. So if I was a new mom, and I was making my baby bored, and then I shared with you that I'm suicidal, that's early identification referral. So I need to seek the help to figure out why am I having these thoughts about killing myself. So those are the six strategies. So it's information dissemination, it's prevention ed, and it's uh, alcohol, tobacco-free alternatives, it's community-based, and then it's uh, changing policies and environment, and then it's early identification and referral. When you do all these things, for example, the prevention education then has to do with teaching me, so you're giving me opportunity, you're teaching me a skill, and then once I get that baby board done, I'm going to show it off, and I'm going to keep that first baby board because tradition says you keep that baby board for your child, and that child is supposed to have that baby board to, as a remembrance. This, this is my baby board. This is mine. You don't give that first baby board away to anyone else. That's that individuals. So now I did a travel-based practice, and we practice protective factors by implementing what we call six prevention strategies. So our prevention unit, may it be anything there, they are supposed to follow the six prevention strategies. They're supposed to have an understanding of all these risk factors and what are those protective factors. And it's not hard to remember. You need to create uh, opportunity, skills, and rewards. And that's the key. To protect the factors.
0: And once again, as a reminder, that was Caroline Cruz, the General Manager of the Health and Human Services Branch here at Warm Springs.